0: Welcome back to the program. It was Woody Allen who said that marriage was the end of hope. We know from the behavior of millennials today that while they strongly favor equality of marriage, they're not too keen on the institution for themselves, at least not too young. Arguably, marriage today, like so much in our society, is undergoing a transition and even disruption. It's certainly not your parents' marriage, but it may be your grandparents'. Suppose we skip back not one but two generations and look at marriages, can we learn anything? that is at all relevant to our 24-7 tech-driven world today. My guest, Carl Pillimer thinks so. He's taken the time to talk to hundreds of older retirees about their relationships and their marriages in the hope that age might provide a little wisdom on one of the oldest subjects. Because after all, again to quote Woody Allen, we all need the eggs. Carl Pillimer is a professor of human development at Cornell University, He's the founder and director of the Cornell Institute for Transitional Research on Aging. He's authored over 100 scientific publications and has spoken widely throughout the world on issues of successful aging. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Carl Pilmer here to talk about 30 Lessons for Loving, Advice from the Wisest Americans on Love, Relationships, and Marriage, Carl, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Looking forward to talking with you. Great to have you here. I want to talk, first of all, about the broader project that you have been involved in for quite a number of years now, this legacy project, going back and talking to people that are retirees, people in their 70s, 80s, and even older in some cases, and really using that as as a kind of resource. Talk a little bit about how that project evolved.
1: Absolutely, and it's something I'm a little embarrassed about, to be honest, because it took a revelation to kind of really bring this home to me. Um, I'd been a gerontologist, somebody who studies older people, for close to 30 years, and I looked back over my research, and it became clear to me that I was studying exclusively the problems of old people. So I was looking at things like elder abuse and chronic pain and Alzheimer's disease and nursing homes. Um, At one point, I began to feel like I was um, rewriting the book of Job for old people, basically. Um, And it struck me that our society does the same thing. It treats old people as sick and frail and useless and dependent. And that was in a sharp contrast to, first of all, the fact that I was meeting lively, interesting, vibrant 80- and 90-year-olds who didn't fit that stereotype. Um, And there's been some good research recently showing that older people are actually much happier than younger people for a bunch of reasons. Uh, So the idea hit me, um, is there something that the oldest Americans know about living a happy, healthy, enjoyable, and fulfilling life that younger people don't? And to my surprise, no one was asking them in any systematic way. Um, And that gave birth to first this legacy project and then the marriage advice project that the second book is based on. Mm -hmm. Um, What can we find out from people at the finish line that can help the rest of us, um, in this case, have happier and more enjoyable marriages?
0: What about the disconnect between the world that these people grew up in? and the world that we live in today, the world that young people in particular inha- are inhabiting today, and the the relevance of the two, and whether or not the advice from these people, while it may be quaint and and sweet on some level, the degree to which it has relevance to the 21st century.
1: That is such a good point. And honestly, um, that was my greatest fear when I started this project, that, that all I would get would be old-fashioned uh, platitudes and cliches, and it really was the reverse. A lot of the insights are different from conventional wisdom, striking, unusual things I or that readers had thought of before, Uh, but I think you hit on a very important point in your introduction, Um, namely there's something about people who are in their kind of late 70s, 80s, and 90s that is strikingly similar to young people today, Mm -hmm. and I think that's why their advice is so relevant. I'll give this one example. Um, We're going through the second worst economic downturn in U.S. history, and people are trying to create marriages and raise kids in that context. Why wouldn't we want to go to the people who went through the worst one? You know, their their advice is so relevant in that sense. So in a sense, your point that I hadn't really thought of of skipping a generation um, is maybe one reason why a lot of what they have to offer Seems so relevant. And young people have told me again and again that this advice from older people seems authentic and unusually useful, more than that from pop psychologists, motivational speakers, and the other kind of folks writing advice books. So I hope that gives a sense of an answer to your question.
0: It does. And the other part of it is not only the economic similarities in talking about that grandparents' generation. But also the transitional similarities, that those people went through a transition at the early part of the 20th century as the world moved to an industrial economy. And there are certainly a lot of other parallels in the transition, in the upheaval, in the disruption that these people had to function in, in terms of their relationships and their marriages, etc., that does have parallels to today, more parallels than perhaps than a parents, the baby boomer generation.
1: You know you 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 raise a great point and one that that I don't highlight in the book, but I think is so true that their experience of technology, for example, but with the rise of television and other kinds of communication, you know had some of these same kind of earth shattering consequences that contemporary social media does so i think I think you know in part that's one reason why it's so relevant. I think the other reason why their advice is so timely and relevant. Is, that, is their personal experience of almost every challenge, difficulty, and even tragedy that keep young people awake at night. So they've been through so many situations which have tested you know, the limits of their marriages, that it's one way where they can actually offer good advice. It, it's really, in fact, there are some things that only people at the finish line who know the full sweep of what marriage and love is like can even give the advice. And I think the problem in our society is that we've lost this notion of going to the oldest people to find out things like this. So that's kind of what I was trying to remedy.
0: When we look at, and I I know you don't deal with this specifically, but from your own experience, when we look at cultures that revere their elders, that that have a different attitude towards this senior generation— what differences do you see in terms of how people deal with with these relationship related issues?
1: There are some obvious and clear differences. I, I would say probably the strongest one is the psychologized nature of our society where people are are more sort of analytical and extremely concerned. I think I, I hope this isn't tangential to your question, but it's what really comes to mind. You know, but one of the key things with older people, and from which I think uh, that younger people can learn, um, was this sense of marriage as being for a lifetime, that it was a lifetime commitment and you experienced dry patches and difficult periods, but you used sort of drive and resilience and discipline to get through them. Um, so, you know, the idea that marriage was only the immediate satisfaction of two people was was different because they also believed in the institution of marriage. And I think that's what they really recommend to younger people as well, is even if it's unrealistic, to treat marriage like it's forever. So I think that's one situation where their orientation was different, but they believe young people could adopt it. So that would be one example, I guess, of
0: that. It's interesting. What's different about that is that when you look at the senior generation, the people you talk to, they looked at it forever because that was the expectation, that was the cultural norm. When young people have that same desire today, it is in reaction to what they've seen, for example, with the baby boomer generation, where there wasn't the cultural expectation, and therefore the whole institution took on a different, a different air about it.
1: Well, and you raised what was actually a, um, a fascinating and complex point. And this really surprised me as I began to delve more into this. Um, if you look at surveys of young people, however, one of the most striking phenomena is how, uh, how almost identical their hopes and aspirations about marriage are uh, as it was 50 years ago or even 100 years ago. So, so if you look at surveys of 20-somethings, almost everyone plans to get married or hopes to get married. Of those over 80, between 80 and 90% say they expect to be married to one person for life. And almost all of them expect to be faithful to that one person. So it might be the triumph of hope over reality, (laughs) but the aspiration of young people is very similar to what it was in my generation or earlier generations. People in our culture do want to be married. The problem is they just aren't sure how to make it happen successfully. So I think, It's one reason, again, why why their advice is highly relevant, because young people in the U.S. at least have very similar dreams, hopes, and desires about marriage that their parents and grandparents did. So it's one thing that hasn't changed quite as much as people think.
0: And yet the structure of of marriage itself has changed when we look at the way it plays out in terms of of equality within the nature of relationships and economic equality and everything that those things have changed fundamentally. But when you go deeper than that, when you go below the surface of that, that's where there are these similarities that you're talking about.
1: Right. So so you're absolutely right. For example, Um, there are obvious differences such as people no longer wait until they're married for their first intimate sexual experience. Most women work outside the home um, and people live together before they get married. So there are those very clear um, differences. Uh, But nonetheless, a lot of these core insights and and from the response of younger people already to the book shows, I think, how useful they are. I will also say another point, one reason for writing this book was not to expose younger people to what they already know. So that the, the fact that these individuals are from a different era and, and have different viewpoints was precisely the reason for writing it. The idea was to shake up conventional wisdom to uh, you know, kind of offer insights from people who did live in a different time. Uh, uh, was As an example, a strong recommendation of the elders in the book is to make your home a haven from work and that people should disconnect electronically from work when they're home. (laughs) Um, And that's where like young people, when I give talks on this, I can see them rolling their eyes, but just because we all do something now doesn't mean it's good. And older people will tell you that, you know, detaching from work, which they were able to do more when they were home is a really good thing. I've had lots of young people come to me and say, Yes, I'm going to try that, even for four hours. So it's where the differences in time period work in terms of their advice, I think.
0: The other area that I thought that there are some interesting parallels and interesting differences, and and this comes back to the point you made before, particularly with respect to baby boomers and the way they they psychoanalyzed everything, is this idea of looking at small issues versus large issues and the importance of the small issues. Talk a little about that.
1: You know, I think that we do, you know, it's actually, it's funny you would say this because I was actually pondering it recently in the context of Valentine's Day and how, at least anecdotally, choosing the right gift becomes a big deal and people look to these gift-giving holidays. Uh, The insights of older people on this particular point map very closely onto what we know from research about marriage. Um, namely that in marriage, it's not the big ticket items, as as much as it is the fact that marriage is hundreds or thousands of micro interactions every single day. And there actually has been research showing that you pretty much need 10 positive interactions. It's almost a rule of 10 to overcome a single nasty interaction. That's really the point of the elders that small things, for example, politeness, uh, you know, because marriage makes us comfortable, but it also makes us comfortable to be tactless and impolite. But um, They say, um, mind your manners, be polite, use please and thank you, um, give compliments, engage in small surprises. The idea is to create this um, a fabric of small positive events, and they give dozens of examples in the book, but um, one of the ones I like the best, and I've tried in my own marriage, um, is do your partner's chore unexpectedly? Uh, if the dog is scratching at the bedroom door at six a m on a cold rainy morning and it's your partner in turn to walk him, offer to do that in their view it's money in the bank for for this kind of uh for a more positive atmosphere and this i'll say at the risk of going on too long i'll say that this is a unique insight from later life. Older people developmentally simply become more attuned to the importance of small things in life and how they give pleasure. So, yeah, really they say, you know, pay attention to the small stuff and be small and positive.
0: In many ways, the decision on the part of younger people today, on the part of millennials, to wait until they're older in order to get married, in many ways may be accentuating precisely these points that you're making, because those are things that come from a developmental perspective later. You're absolutely
1: right. And without going into a social science, you know, kind of dissertation, there's one thing that we know about people age 70 and older that makes them developmentally different from younger people. And that's an acute awareness of a limited time horizon. Um, And young people, I'm sure you've heard them as I have, have a friend die in their 20s, say, and they'll say, oh, I'm going to stop now and smell the flowers. But three days later, they're back to working all the time. Older people don't have that luxury. And what the research shows is it doesn't so much depress them as help them make better choices, Um, but they become better able to regulate their emotions. Uh, They choose more positive and rewarding experiences and spend more time with highly rewarding people. Um, One of the hypotheses of this book is that young people can learn from that perspective, that uh, the idea of appreciating and savoring small things Uh, The idea of being grateful sort of on a day-to-day basis, um, of not kind of, um, of wasting your time in unproductive activities, of valuing experiences over things. These are things which come naturally to older people. And I had many of them say, I wish I'd learned this in my 30s instead of my 70s. So that's one of the underlying themes of the book is I think that we can learn from this elder lens, so to speak.
0: And what's interesting, what parallels that is if we look at millennials today and the things that interest them, the things that drive them, in many ways it is this idea of experience over things, and it is a reaction to many of the things they saw from their boomer parents. And that's where it dovetails precisely into the kind of things that you're talking about that you heard from these elders.
1: You know, I think that is, that is really true, and it, and it touches on an undercurrent of, of advice that, you, that for folks who read the book, you'll see it underpins a lot of the lessons, and that is the um, um, making your marriage central, so that the idea is it's what they say in terms of in-laws, it's what they say in terms of work, and surprisingly, it's what they say in terms of children. That pretty much your spouse or your partner has to come first, and that, that these other experiences or, or domains of life are going to be better if your marital relationship is really strong um, and that was one thing which surprised me a bit was how strongly from the end of marriage, people are um, regretful um, when they didn't put their marriage first and they let say child rearing or work overwhelm it um, and uh, so I think that, that, that kind of ties into what you're saying, I think, that there's this sense of, of you know, the, the, the unique value of your marital relationship if you're going to stay married for, you know, a half century or more.
0: What kind of reaction have you gotten from young people that have read this book, that have listened to some of these interviews, that, that have heard some of this? How have they responded?
1: You know, I'm so pleased to say that uh, the reaction is extraordinarily positive. And you know, I think there could be, um, you know, Jeff. I would say that um, um, well, one reason is that they are very ambivalent about aging. On the one hand, older people, um, young people, tend to ignore older people or have ageist attitudes. But they also have a real longing for presence of older people in their lives. And if you look at popular culture you know, characters like Yoda and Dumbledore and the character that Morgan Freeman plays in almost every movie that's made today. (laughs) uh, You know, it it shows there is a real hunger for wise and helpful older people in the lives of younger people. So a lot of them have not only found this kind of advice from very old people to be cool. I have gotten many, many uh, emails and contacts from young people saying that they took the same approach then but with, with elders in their own network and found it extraordinarily um, rewarding. So I think even though older people are being in some ways systematically excluded, there is a deep hunger and it's very natural to, to want to know what people who've lived their lives think. So I found um, my young people to be in some ways you know, surprised and challenged by the advice about love and marriage but also to be highly receptive to it. And I think that's a good sign for an aging society, you
0: know. And of course, as these 70 and 80-year-olds and beyond live longer lives, they will be a more constant and more ongoing source of all of this wisdom and information.
1: This is one of the biggest changes in our society. That's why I think that we need to answer the question. It'll sound a little funny, but what are older people good for? Because we have to remember that almost all of us who have children, we're going to have a much longer period of shared lifetime after our children become adults, perhaps even twice or three times as long. So that we have to figure out how are these relationships going to work themselves out. And I think that this idea of learning from older people and modeling on them, uh, you know, you know, I think again it comes back to this idea that and it's not going to sound like a profound social science one, but, but it really hit me is if we want to know how to have long marriages, why not ask people who've had them um, their advice? It it seemed like such a straightforward idea, but to my surprise, no one had done it before, but I think it gets back to precisely what you're saying. They're going to be um, more and more older people. And one of the advantages of a lengthened lifespan it's truly seasoned older people who have a good advice for the rest of us.
0: Dr. Carl Pillimer, the book is 30 Lessons for Loving, Advice from the Wisest Americans on Love, Relationships, and Marriage. Carl, I thank you so much for spending time with us today.
1: Well, it's been a great uh, um, a pleasure, and thanks for such interesting and thought-provoking questions. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.